Welcome to TWIL, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on January 29th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Today, I welcome back to my good friend and collaborator, Ross Silverman. He's professor of health policy and management at the Indiana University of Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI and holds a secondary appointment as professor of public health law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. His research interests include legal, ethical, and policy issues in public health and medicine, mobile health law and policy, interdisciplinary curriculum development, professional school admissions, medical humanities, human rights, and patient safety. He serves numerous leadership positions in the field of public health law, including as a mentor in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Future of Public Health Law Education Program, and as a member of the American Public Health Association Action Board. He's also past chair of the American Public Health Association law section and got a really nice write-up, Ross, in the last issue of CDC News, which was great to read. Yeah, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here and to continue having these conversations, Nick. And a first-time welcome to Alexandra Phelan. Dr. Phelan is a member of the Center for Global Health Science and Security and a faculty research instructor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Georgetown University. She also holds an appointment as adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Dr. Phelan works on legal and policy issues relating to infectious diseases, with a particular focus on emerging and re-emerging infectious disease outbreaks and international law. She's worked as a consultant for the World Health Organization, the World Bank, and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. She's advised on matters including international law and pathogen sharing, human rights law, Zika, intellectual property law, and contract law. Big welcome to the pod, Alexandra. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Well, our focus today, huge surprise, spoiler alert, is going to be the Wuhan coronavirus. But before we tackle that, and given that I have two public health experts wired up, such that this episode has all the makings of, quote, the week in public health law spinoff, I thought we should start with a public health lightning round. Some of these were inspired by a, a, a tweet from Ross about just how much was going on in public health uh, over the last week or so. So the first starting point was in Flint, Michigan, or uh, more accurately, Washington, D.C., where we heard that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals case, City of Flint against Gwertin, which is You'll probably remember a class action brought by Flint residents suing for damages following the 2014 water contamination scandal. The case uh, reached the Supreme Court via the Sixth Circuit on cert on the issue of uh, city and state officials and state regulators uh, who had been claiming qualified immunity. The trial judge had ruled that the then governor had been, quote, indifferent to the risk of bodily harm. So it will, of course, still be a while before any trial. So uh, I guess, Ross, that's the, uh, the the usual course, isn't it, with the way public health litigation goes? Yeah, it's still a, a little ways away as far as them working through those issues. The interesting part about this case is it really does expand this idea, the right to bodily integrity to kind of a class rather than just individuals. So it's going to be interesting now that we know that there are at least 5,000 children under the age of 12 and 25,000 people that have been affected by the Flint lead contamination issues to see this type of a case go forward with such a large body of uh, of people potentially involved in the case. So this is definitely one to watch. It's certainly not the only litigation 
litigation that's going on. There's another big lawsuit that the uh, ACLU, among others, have brought against the Flint schools because of the downstream effects of inadequately providing for services within the school district as a result of the needs for the population of students who have been affected uh, by the lead poisoning. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's again, these these issues, I mean, they're going to be a lifetime of issues associated with this because of the permanent issues that have been raised for, uh, for these vulnerable populations. Do we know anything about the source of defendant potential damages? I mean, is this all going to go to the city or the state or are there insurers involved? Because I'm, I'm assuming we're looking at really quite serious numbers here. I don't know the provenance of the uh, of the funding. I'm assuming uh, it's going to come from local and state insurance pockets, uh, you know, largely as, as kind of centered through the litigation against the officials in their public capacities. So the next one that we noted was what's called the New England Journal of Medicine Hotspotting Study. This, Ross, I, I think uh, uh, comes from a, a, a basically a, a sort of a natural experiment in Camden, New Jersey. And the idea that I think most people know is that uh, there's the theory that we need to target super utilizers of the healthcare system, uh, persons with medically and socially complex needs uh, who, for example, amongst other things, um, challenge uh, hospital admissions and readmissions. And the idea was to develop a wraparound services program and divert uh, these super utilizers. Um, sometimes in the literature, they're called frequent flyers. But the study, as we have it at the moment, um, or as it was published in NEJM, suggests that there was there were barely different results from the targeted group who were diverted and a control group, which has sort of uh, uh, cast a, a bit of a, a, a pall over the idea of this kind of hotspotting or diversion. Yeah, the, it's uh, it did make a big splash. Um, you know, the hotspotting uh, issue really got its uh, launch in a profile done uh, by Atul Gawande in the New England, or I'm sorry, in the New Yorker, which really put a, a spotlight on this type of a program. This was a randomized control trial that they did in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, you know, that's the gold standard. You don't get a lot of gold standard social determinant of health, public health kind of uh, studies out there. So that got a lot of attention as well. That said, the impact they were looking for was very narrow. Um, and this is always a challenge, I think, when you intersect public health, human rights, um, ethics issues with uh, economics and uh, health services research. Uh, they really kept a narrow focus on hospital admissions and ED visits as being kind of the core measures they were looking at. And on the one hand, in this case, as you said, they found it fairly equivocal uh, as far as the difference that this made. On By contrast, uh, the Eskenazi health system, which is the system local to the Indianapolis area, my colleagues at the School of Public Health, uh, among others, 
had a study published in Health Affairs in 2018 that found significant cost savings by implementing wraparound services. And that said, it's in many ways, it's a right thing to do. It can help stabilize people. It can help give people a sense of greater connection within their community. Um, and so there's a lot of value that was kind of not in the spotlight to be measured here. Um, and so, you know, that so you really do have this challenge of putting the contrast of the, you know, you know, ROI kind of measurements versus the ethics and the, you know, the humane, you know, it's really a right thing to do to be aiding these extremely vulnerable populations. I guess it also, uh, in a sense, uh, gives us some sort of insight into the the problems of medicalization of poverty, uh, of trying to handle what are social issues through um, healthcare financing. It doesn't mean we should stop doing that because there doesn't appear to be an alternative, yeah. but it, it does uh, continually strike me as being an indirect approach to dealing with a problem that we know all about. Yeah, and it does. It's that concept we're moving from the idea of social determinants of health into a larger concept that they're calling structural determinants of health and politics and policymaking being at the core of that. Um, and this really leaves that off the table and says, well, hopefully those hospitals and health systems by connecting up with their community can offload these issues and take care of these things that really we as a larger society ought to be addressing. Finally, a uh, quick update on uh, another piece of public health litigation, uh, the opioid litigation, which continues uh, its march, apparently designed to show us that uh, litigation remains as fraught as ever and as lengthy as ever. You will recall from a year or two ago, the sort of the procedural glue that gummed up the federal multi-district litigation case in Cleveland. Um, uh, we have progressed, if that is the right word, from the glue of Cleveland to uh, the uh, the complete staying involved in the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy proceedings in White Plains, New York. The bankruptcy proceedings uh, have meant that both state and federal actions against Purdue Pharma have been stayed, and quite controversially, because they're not part of the bankruptcy proceedings, uh, the stay has been expanded to include uh, staying actions against the Sackler family. So we're all now waiting with bated breath to see what the financial picture uh, about the Sacklers will emerge from the current uh, proceedings in New York. And thereafter, whether discovering and presumably then uh, being able to extract some extra family billions into the proposed Chapter 11 reorganization, whether that will make the objecting states to the settlement a bit more compliant or whether they will take continue to take a more principled stand, which is we shouldn't be paying for the opioid crisis by collecting money from the sales of more opioids. The bankruptcy stay, however, has not deterred the Oklahoma State Attorney General Hunter, who so far is the only winner at trial. Remember the big case against J&J last year? Um, he's filed new lawsuits against three large drug distributors, and he's also filed for um, against J&J for about half a million dollars in litigation costs from the case. Uh, other skirmishes, including a court order requiring the Board of Drug Distributor 
Amerisource Bergen to turn over records to investors probing possible wrongdoing by the drug distributors uh, board. Meanwhile, the defendant pharmacies in the Cleveland litigation, I think uh, our friend Leo Boletsky referred to it as the blame game litigation, uh, arguing that doctors are responsible for any improper distribution of opioids to patients, not the pharmacists who are merely obliged to fill those prescriptions. And finally, for those who think that there will never be anyone actually taken to task for this, uh, you probably will have read uh, this last week about the INSIS executives uh, who were sentenced to jail time for bribing doctors to prescribe a fentanyl-based painkiller. I'm guessing that a lot of opioid manufacturers, boardrooms, and senior executives will have taken notice. Yeah, it's been an area that I've been sort of keeping an eye on and waiting to see when, you know, more finality gets to the litigation just to before I really jump in at any point. You're going to leave it to me, aren't you? Son, you're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So lightning round over. Let us turn to the uh, developing story of the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, Longer for those uh, who are real experts like Alexandra, I'm sure, and talk about the Wuhan coronavirus or 2019-NCOV. Can we start with the science? We all have some knowledge about Ebola, Zika, MERS, SARS, and so on. CDC has a very good page up with lots of uh, information. But um, overall, speculation aside, Alexandra, um, am I correct that our epidemiologic information at the moment about this is really quite low? Uh, so in terms of the the details about the cases that have occurred, how they've been transmitted, um, and the sort of classic epidemiology questions, there are certainly uh, a large amount of gaps. Um, the WHO has just in, in recent days developed a data sharing portal specific for epidemiological data so we can get um, anonymised information about cases, their contacts, the timing of the development of symptoms and their potential exposures. So we can start to develop a profile of how uh, transmission has occurred but obviously we are now a couple of weeks in so there is um, there's there's a large gap in the detail of the epidemiological data in uh, from China itself but hopefully that that process can start to rectify it in terms of what we know about the actual about the about the NCOV 2019 virus itself um, scientists have been uh, doing on this and so information is starting to to be uh, gleaned. Um, What we do have are still a number of significant gaps. So so what we know, we know that this is a coronavirus. Coronaviruses are... um, very common in humans. Um, a number of coronaviruses cause, say, the common cold. Um, but in, as we learned in, say, 2002, 2003, is that sometimes coronaviruses can cause much more severe respiratory illness in humans. And that was when we saw SARS or severe acute respiratory syndrome uh, coronavirus. Um, since then, we've had another one, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, or that causes MERS. Uh, and with with 2009 NCOV, uh, which we will be getting a, 
a new name, a, a more uh, more user-friendly name uh, once the committee decides on that in the future. But uh, what we do know about this NCOV is, um, you know, it is a respiratory illness. It may potentially infect uh, more the lower respiratory tract than the upper respiratory tract. That's still a question to be uh, to get clarity on because that affects how it is transmitted. But the typical symptoms that people have if they've been infected is, and they they are showing symptoms of the disease is, uh, you know, uh, particularly say fever um, and cough, uh, and then in in more severe cases a progression to a pneumonia um, and and potentially death. And and that's really how it was initially discovered is this identification of clusters of this pneumonia that uh, initially didn't have a known cause, and then this this NCOV, this novel coronavirus, was was isolated from these patients. Um, in terms of uh, the other outstanding questions, is the first question is where where potentially did this coronavirus come from? And it's most likely to have come from a zoonotic animal source. Um, you know, many emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic in in that they when animals and humans come into contact, uh, and and that virus or those pathogens can perhaps jump from from animals to humans. Um, and so, where the original source was might help us work out how to. Uh, how to prevent uh, other spillovers in the future. But now what we're seeing is this human-to-human transmission. So initially it was limited and clustered, so people who had had close contact or had been providing what eventually came out was also people who were providing medical care, so being in, in that close contact. Um, but in recent in the recent week or last two weeks, we've now seen that more, sus- more sustained human-to-human transmission, still not fully sustained. It still is limited uh, to some degree, but we're seeing it transmit between people So we've got some classic questions about, you know, how many people does this actually, if someone is sick, how many people do they then infect? Um, Is it possible that uh, people can transmit the virus and infect others before they show symptoms? Um, Typically, the assumption is that's not the case, that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic transmission with a coronavirus is unlikely, but that still is yet to be ruled out. Um, And so, uh, and then also how many people who are infected actually progress to really severe disease? So getting more clarity on the actual severity of um, of the illness caused by the disease is another outstanding question. So with regard to the former of those questions before the asymptomatic question, uh, the, the, the reproduction number or the R0, isn't it called, uh, I think, um, are we, do we have any sense of what that number is yet? And perhaps to give us some context, do we, what, what are the R0 numbers, for example, in SARS or MERS? So R0 is a tricky one. It's, it's, I think, particularly because it's, it's you know, often cited and, and used as a simulacrum to indicate how severe an outbreak is. And I think the important thing to know is an R0 can, can be a range. Um, it, uh, it tells us roughly on average how many people would be um, infected typically in a uh, susceptible population. Um, so, for example, measles, you know, has a typically a high R0 of 12. That is, you know, one sick person will infect 12 uh, susceptible uh, individuals. Um, SARS, you know, has... Has a, has a much lower range, sort of, you know, between sort of the, I think it's two to five or so. I'd have to uh, assess the, so look at the, the precise numbers. What we're getting here is a similar sort of range. Um, I mean, I'm hesitant to go into a huge amount of detail on it because I think it is not necessarily useful, a useful measure in terms of communicating severity to the public. And I think it's, it's one of those uh, numbers that can be jumped onto as we've sort of seen happen.
happen on social media. Um, and in our naught, you know, it, it can fluctuate depending on the sorts of social interventions and other interventions that are occurring. So that's a, a good caution, uh, as perhaps we talk about. I know Ross is going to jump in as well. Talk a little bit about sort of the the current risk analysis that's going out there in social media and elsewhere. Uh, Richard Horton on Twitter, I noted, quote, a call for caution, please. Media are escalating anxiety by talking of, quote, a killer virus and, quote, growing fears. In truth, from what we currently know, NCOV has moderate transmissibility and relatively low pathogenity. Uh, there is no reason to foster panic with exaggerated language. And then there was a really nice piece by Liz Sabo in um, Kaiser Health News, uh, which is called Something Far Deadlier Than the Wuhan Virus lurks near you and it's flu um both of which i thought were were good tempering pieces no i i think you're absolutely right i mean we do have to keep a very level head as far as the statistics are concerned as far as transmissibility is concerned the better we get at screening the more we understand this the more we use social distancing policies to address those who may have been exposed and their movement and their ability to potentially expose others, uh, that our not number will change. Um, you know, Ebola, when you have a person isolated, the R not gets close to zero. Um, so it's, again, it's one of those things I think that got jumped on. You know, the, the movie Contagion did a really great job in talking about a lot of issues, but it really pushed this R not uh, concept to the forefront and gave it a bit more prominence and a bit less nuance than maybe it really needed in a one-minute uh, you know, dramatic speech. So we seem not to be there for the um, everyone dressing up in hazmat suit stage. Rather, we're at social distancing and wearing gloves stage, even if we are in Wuhan. Uh, from some of the stuff I've read, so I, I think um, I think we are in the, the 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 standard prevention measures that we know works for respiratory illness, and and that's that's you know, very good hand washing, um, people not being out in public, so you know their own sort of self directed social uh, social distancing, or if they're feeling ill, to stay out of public and to contact healthcare authorities. Um, I think you know I would hope that in any outbreak we don't ever get to the hazmat suit stage in in that sort of sort of in the, in the the public sphere, partly because of, of the unnecessary uh, fear and concern it actually causes, which then also will mean people are less likely to, to engage in help-seeking and health-seeking um, behaviours. I think, though, what is important to note is that for medical professionals you know, and frontline healthcare workers and those who are coming into contact with people who are, um, are potentially unwell is you know, having appropriate personal protective equipment is, is absolutely critical, and that's, that's uh, you know the appropriate um, masks and including eye masks. Um, you know what it, it appears that this respiratory droplets potentially could spread. You know uh, that way, just like other respiratory droplets. So I think when we talk about hazmat suits or medical PPE, the most important focus is going to be on ensuring that that healthcare workers uh, are the ones that have that. And I think there is a broader geopolitical issue that starts to arise here about pandemic preparedness, and that is, um, you know, often there are many risks that countries will think about when they're preparing for a potential pandemic, whether it be flu or a coronavirus or something else. And one thing that is often not considered is logistical risk and logistical supply chain risk. Um, we've already seen um, face masks, you know, 
running off the shelves or, um, you know, there was even a, a fine uh, in uh, a business fine in Beijing overnight for price gouging on, on face masks. Um, but, you know, in terms of where is the world's uh, personal protective equipment produced and, you know, do countries like the United States, um, if, if they are wanting to ensure that healthcare workers are protected, do we have adequate stockpiles? Um, is the supply chain potentially put at risk by a pandemic like this? And these are questions that governments should be asking in, in their pandemic preparedness process. Well, that's a good place to start with sort of some questions I have, which I guess would be around identifying or, or describing the public health playbook as it were applied to something like this. And I suppose, but feel free to, to, to modify the question if you like. For me, it comes down to sort of two sub-questions about the application of the public health playbook. One, what do you do if you, your government, state, region, whatever, is the location of patient zero? And second, what's the public health playbook for recipient countries such as the US? So can we start, if you'll accept that distinction, with China and what what is the correct play with regard to an outbreak like this? Um, the CDC is saying nice things about their counterparts, um, um, about transparency, but there are some questions about how transparent they were at the beginning, uh, whether that there are political structures in China that perhaps have caused some slowdown in the information spread. Um, and then I guess to the next point, which is the public health measures that China is apparently applying, are these um, proven to uh, be useful in preventing spread, are lockdowns, travel bans, and so on optimal? So could you both sort of maybe address what you think about sort of the the land of patient zero? I want to take uh, a second and give a little bit of framing, and then I am happy to defer. Uh, Alex knows this area on the global scale in unbelievable depth. And just take a, a second to talk about kind of some central ethical tenets that we see guiding these approaches. First is there is, we should acknowledge an obligation to do something. This it comes from uh, a public health ethical standard that we call the precautionary principle. There is a, an obligation of government when there are reasonably foreseeable threats, even if the information is incomplete and we're still in that kind of fog of response mode, that there is an obligation to take some actions. And in these circumstances, we do have to make sure that the actions that are being taken are bounded by human rights consideration, what we would call civil rights considerations in the U.S., using ideally uh, as minimally restrictive an approach as possible to getting towards the public health goal, and also using voluntary measures whenever possible as opposed to mandatory measures, and then being as transparent and communicative as possible. And agreements that are in place for especially things like the international health regulations are helping to foster international communication and the sharing of information, as Alex talked about earlier. And that we're seeing happening sooner than we did when the SARS uh, outbreak occurred 15 years ago. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with the, the points that Ross has made. Um, I think the phrase that I've used a couple of times on Twitter is, is 2002 is not 2020. So what happened in SARS is, is, is not what we're seeing today. Uh, but 2016 is also not 2020. And that's the point that what we've seen is a, a shift over the last few years in uh, how China is approaching looking outwards to the to the world and, and in terms of global health in particular. So, for example, um, you know, how perhaps freedom of speech is regulated, how civil society is regulated, um, and the nature of, of the Chinese bureaucracy is one that is fragmented between the provinces and the national government. And so there is a, a process whereby th- that bureaucratic behemoth does mean that things take time to filter up. And so sometimes when we're seeing a, a disconnect between the data from central and the data from the provinces, that, that's perhaps an artefact of that process. But also there are there is a legal environment Environment in which uh, you know public health information can be considered state secrets um, that have very obviously significant penalties for revealing them. There's also uh, a question of where accountability is for when there are failures um, and outbreak notification. So there's you know there there has been um, decentralization of uh, of provincial leaders sharing information up to central if they believe they can get an outbreak controlled in time. Um, the the question is is whether that's happened here is a little bit harder and I think um, I think the you know there are probably natural barriers in in the information sharing process domestically that are likely sufficient to hamper rapid public health response or quality of data without necessarily needing to look behind um, behind intent but that might come out with with time um, you know I think it's quite evidence that the scale of spread is 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 significant not just in Hubei but now increasing around around the country and so what is then worrying is when you look at the sorts of measures that the government in Hubei Bay province, which is where Wuhan is the capital city, have responded to the outbreak through initially the um, the shutdown of uh, of transport in and out of uh, Wuhan, um, predominantly public transport, but uh, increasingly also um, vehicle traffic, and then the extension of those uh, measures to other part other cities within the province. And you know, more, rather than them being quarantines, which is how they've you know been referred to. Uh, largely in in the media is you know they're more the classic cordon sanitaire and the cordon sanitaires as um ross has pointed out um they're the, the sort of criteria that ross pointed out about looking at what uh what is a legitimate public health intervention you know versus social distancing and uh, a cordon sanitaire is less likely to fulfill the criteria that ross set out because it is often overly um it captures it's overly uh overly broad um it doesn't necessarily ensure that the conditions within the cordon sanitaire are uh, fulfilling what we would consider minimum ethical requirements. Um, from my point of view, in, in addition to that, uh, there is the huge element of public trust that is required in any public health response uh, and measures by a government that um, uh, that are seen as um, overly restrictive or without an evidence base or potentially even punitive or, or could cause fear, you know, particularly when you see food or water or other logistical you know, medical supplies running out within in the area subjected to a to a shutdown. The worry is that that will push people away from engaging with public health authorities if they do feel sick because they they're worried. What is going to happen to me? Am I going to be? You know, how am I going to be treated? It also means people try to bypass the measures uh, because they're scared. You know, if you they're scared, and you know this is in the middle of Lunar New Year. We've passed the actual Lunar New Year, but we're still in the period of, of travel um, that would normally be going on. That if people need to get back to work or they need to get to their families 
is they're going to find ways to try and avoid um, avoid these uh, these measures. Um, and what that means is you lose important opportunities to provide people with proper uh, information, with proper channels of communication and uh, and pathways for how to actually get medical treatment. Um, and when you drive people underground and away from public health authorities, that's when you, you see outbreaks spread and, and the, there is that real risk to, to health more broadly. Toward that end, uh, as we're starting to see other countries start to prepare for uh, cases, we're also seeing a little bit of the fear outrunning the facts uh, in, in different uh, locations. So we're seeing, for example, some places wanting to set up quarantine stations uh, outside of the normal hospitals, for example. Um, where those places are going to be located, there may be rumor, there may be misinformation. That can create fear in and of itself and hostility in and of itself. We've seen some rioting uh, associated with the idea that a uh, an abandoned warehouse was going to be used uh, that was near, it was about a, it was several minutes travel from uh, a neighborhood, but the people living within that neighborhood were very fearful about locating uh, the uh, exposed populations in that area. So this health communication component uh, and the trust maintenance is tremendous. And I think, you know, when Alex says 2020 is not 2016, is not uh, 2003, I think the management of good information uh, is such a vital part of uh, this outbreak that even we didn't see four years ago. Well, let's move from the source country or region and talk about third country responses, including uh, the US. I mean, the playbook includes, I'm not endorsing these necessarily, travel advisories. We're seeing some of those uh, travel bans. Um, I think only Hong Kong so far has moved to an outright travel ban. We have border inspections of persons coming in from source country and we have quarantine. Uh, there's a story from the UK this morning that Britain's returning from Wuhan uh, will be placed in quarantine for 14 days. Um, what's the sort of the optimal third country response? Yeah, I think this actually does in many ways also flow from from the point that, uh, that Ross was making is that we've now started to see the fear and concern that was promulgated in China, you know, some some elements of it quite you know, justified and an emerging infectious disease, but a large amount of it built up by by the response by the government. And we're, we've started to see that seep in globally. You know, these the measures of the, the quarantine in, in Australia has also announced a quarantine on individuals that they're expatriating out of Wuhan on an island which Australia has historically used to uh, to detain asylum seekers or refugees. Um to me, very much is a, an example of governments seeking to look like they are doing something and doing uh, very um, overly restrictive measures uh, that is uh, fanned by the fear in, in countries. I think what has really stood out to me is, in, particularly in Australia, the, the scale of, of, of um Worry that is quite palpable in in the media and in, in the population, and and the this this measure I think is is consistent with that because when we go back to the the excellent points Ross made earlier is we we from a public health response we look at the least restrictive measure and I think a more appropriate example of what should be happening there is individuals uh, self quarantine. We know that people generally uh, people will comply. They don't want to get sick. They don't uh, they want to comply with with public health authorities if they feel safe and they feel that they have. 
pathways for if they do get sick. So, you know, um, active surveillance, such as providing people with, with thermometers, um, checking those temperatures with them, uh, like checking in with them uh, uh, once or a couple of times a day uh, and seeing if people actually develop develop symptoms and develop illness, then being able to mount an appropriate, um, you know, uh, isolation, diagnostic and, and potential treatment response. I mean, in the case of Australia, that's, that's 600 individuals out of a city of 11 million, um, you know, to be quarantining people on an island doesn't seem a proportionate response at all and how that quarantine is conducted is obviously up for question. I think a, a similar analysis could be in many respects applied to the, the British example and, and other examples that countries might demonstrate as they, rec- as they bring citizens or residents uh, out of China. Along those lines, I think one of the things that uh, Alex has alluded to um, and is very much in play here is how do you address uh, this issue knowing that the primary source at this point is the world's second largest economy and the largest population within uh, one political border in the world. The challenges we're seeing, you know, we're starting to see while the global, uh, and as we're speaking, I think there's uh, going to be another announcement from the World Health Organization pretty soon about uh, recommendations for how international, uh, whether, you know, a higher level of uh, caution should be handled on an international level. But we're seeing businesses start to make significant decisions. British Airways, as was mentioned, is now canceling flights. Um, Starbucks has closed half of its stores. McDonald's has done the same. The the fact that this is going to have significant economic ramifications is one that I think all of these, uh, what we'll say secondary infection or tertiary infection countries uh, have to consider because this is such a critical trading partner. I think one thing you will see is this is not going to end up being called the Wuhan virus. We we know the World Health Organization put a few rules in place a, a few years ago about naming viruses so that it doesn't permanently stigmatize the geographic locations where they were originally identified. So that even in and of itself, what we call this is is a political and public health communication concern. One of the questions that you usually see the CDC director being asked in in, um, a news conference is, will and when will the US declare a public health emergency? Or has there been a, a World Health Organization declaration of an emergency? Presumably, although we, we know there are some legal issues that flow from such a declaration, presumably these also have to be managed because of how they will look in the media and so on. Yeah, so we've actually just uh, received um, in the last uh, couple of hours in, in confirmation that the Director General of the World Health Organization has reconvened the Emergency Committee for t- uh, tomorrow. Um, so we'll likely get an announcement, well, we will get an announcement tomorrow whether th- whether a public health emergency of international concern is being declared under international law. The way I see it is we already have <laughs> panic and concern. Um, We've got people now asking, why hasn't an emergency been declared? This is clearly um, something of, this is clearly a global event of of, uh, international significance. Um, So my my general sense is, so my general take is if a a declaration of emergency can be an opportunity to get out in front and show leadership and issue the relevant recommendations and set the standards for what countries should and should not do, in particular to control potential 
potential um, travel and trade restrictions and the, or at least set the standard for what is acceptable in terms of travel or trade restrictions or the measures that governments do. And so I think, um, you know, the, 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 while there may be hesitations to declare emergencies because of the public, um, because public fear of how public will respond, um, you know, the whole point of these declarations is you know, often to either uh, release funds, which doesn't occur on the international scale, but, you know, maybe what occurs depending on, on the type of emergency declared domestically, um, but also to provide an important communications and information opportunity. You know, emergency declarations get people's attention. That's the, that's the entire point of them. And so I think having that leadership and that, that front-footed leadership is, is really crucial. That said, I think it's questionable at this point whether someplace like the United States needs to get onto emergency footing. I think we already have, under the law, adequate tools uh, available to us to be in front of this. You know, we've already got the right laws in place and powers in place to make sure that, for example, travelers from areas that are known to have uh, outbreaks get funneled through particular places that have adequate or can uh, ramp up to have adequate screening. We actually saw those who were airlifted, and I it's a terrible term to use, but it's the one that I have at the front of my mind, those who were being evacuated from Wuhan coming back to the United States, that flight landed at Anchorage, Alaska, and everybody was screened in Anchorage, Alaska before they brought them back down into the United uh, into the continental United States. So there are these tools that are already available for screening, especially if this acts like a typical coronavirus where only when you are symptomatic are you infectious. We can, we can handle the issues uh, in the United States without having to ramp up the, uh, you know, to, to code red. I am, um, I completely agree. I think, um, and that really is a great way to sort of highlight what, what should be being done. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, lo- a lot of people looking at, say, the border screening measures, which from past outbreaks, we know are generally not actually very, uh, they cost a lot of money, but you don't necessarily detect individuals um, because they may not be showing symptoms um, uh, and, and a couple of, a couple of other reasons. But it highlights why it's so important that healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, have been given the resources and the training and the uh, that they and the knowledge that they need to be able to respond if they have potential uh, cases of coronavirus. So the ability to assess individuals, to isolate them, to then um, tr- uh, to actually test them and screen them, um, and then provide them with with treatment uh, in appropriate containment um, if they are found to be uh, positive. And the rules and and powers that, that the United States has is a, a pretty pretty clear um, on that. The CDC updated their regulations in the last couple of years to be compliant with international uh, international law. There are still a few sort of potential outstanding issues in terms of how um, whether you know how due process is guaranteed. So an individual who might be subjected to a restrictive confinement that isn't necessarily a risk or, or a process for reviewing that risk, um, and that would you know then fall back on on constitutional due process protection. 
protections. And then there's always that risk with the fear um, that is circulating that political decisions will govern um, containments, is, which is kind of what we saw with uh, with a number of cases during during Ebola. Um, but uh, whether whether that has been those lessons have been learnt, we'll, we'll likely see. I think the scale of this sort of the, so the nature of this sort of outbreak um, means we we may be less likely to see those sorts of reactions. But we have seen already quite a bit of xenophobia, um, not just in online communities, but um, but more broadly, say in the media. Um, and my big concern is we will start to see that xenophobia or racism um, filter out increasingly um, as we start to get cases in in different countries around the world. Um, and that obviously can very easily be played into by political decision makers who may have certain powers depending on state jurisdictions to to subject individuals to quarantines and uh, and then we just simply have to go through the process of having those those appropriately reviewed. Talking about Ebola and shifting just slightly, one of the things that I thought um, Ebola highlighted was this sort of thin line between when is something a public health issue and when is something a health system capacity or preparedness issue. Um, many will remember that um, a man infected with the Ebola virus was misdiagnosed and died at the Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas during that outbreak in what seemed to be something of a sort of a panicked reaction. Yet we are seeing more positive signs um, this time around in that I think in Washington state, some of the first cases presenting found a, a healthcare system that that was sensitized to such issues and prepared uh, both because of the flu season and because of the measles outbreaks. And so uh, I think maybe there's a lesson here for um, uh, our healthcare systems as well as public health. No doubt. It's a, I mean, these systems are strong understanding. Uh, and I think the nature of the disease itself, I mean, this being uh, a, a far different type of uh, illness than Ebola and the impact of exposure being uh, significant significantly different. I think not only are you going to see capacity in the sense of the local providers being uh, having it on their radar, I think you will see greater local capacity nationally. So it'll be a more diffuse response nationally than just, you know, one of a handful of centers around the country that have the kind of isolation facilities as well as highly trained local providers. Uh, who'd be able to respond. All right. Well, time is pressing and you're both busy people. Um, so let me uh, finish with sort of one question. Assuming that you 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 are both staring at uh, multiple screens with dashboards, with uh, data continually updating, what are you looking for, both in terms of positives and negatives as this particular virus spreads? So the, the first uh, thing I'd be looking for is to see if we have any uh, more cases in countries outside of China where there's evidence of um, spread between individuals um, without a travel history. So that would start to give us indication of um, of whether this is spreading within the communities. And I think that would be that would be worrying if we started to see 
that would be worrying if we started to see that uh, that that spread. Um, I think the other information that we're still lacking that we really need we need more information is is, is pre- uh, precision on the length of the incubation period. Um, whether this this little question that's sitting there about possible asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic transmission, if we can answer that question, you know, I think the positive thing would be is if we we do start to see we will continue to see cases in countries that do have travel histories but if we see that those cases as well as any potential limited uh, human to human transmission in other countries are rapidly detected um, and uh, and isolated and people are given treatment and medical care then I think that is a that is a, that would be very promising I'll say and I'll go a little bit more meta I, ho- I wholeheartedly agree uh, with what Alex had said as far as the uh, response here I think the broader conversations you know as we are seeing more of these zoonotic uh, diseases jumping over or as David Kwanman calls it the spillover effect uh, that we are seeing whether there are broader conversations that come out of this outbreak about the impingement upon ecosystems uh, and and the increasing amount of human interaction in areas where we previously did not live as as being something that we as a society have a have a broader conversation about because I do think the more we see expansion into these new environments, the higher these risks that we're going to come up against uh, an ever increasing number of novel outbreaks. And that was the week in health law. Thank you for a great discussion. Ross, as always, a great pleasure having you on the show. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thanks again. Alexandra, I hope this won't be your only time on the pod. I hope not. Thank you so much for having me. You can find both Professor Silverman and Phelan on Twitter. Alex is Alexandra Phelan and Ross is at PHLU. Thank you so much. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.